the black community. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Richard Harris. Richard, good morning. Morning, all. So let's take a look at the headlines here. The ECB surprises markets, embracing a form of QE. The euro drops to almost a yearly low. A U.S. judge rules that BP was reckless in the Gulf, paving the way for a fine of up to 17 to 18 billion U.S. dollars. And China considers letting developers buy interbank bonds. This follows a second big developer raising money in a rights issue. And also in one other interesting tidbit this morning, China's train makers say no plans to merge after an influential magazine said that they would. But first, Mario Draghi. The governing council t- decided today to lower the interest rate on the main refinancing operation. The ECB chief also delivered on QE. In addition, the governing council decided to start purchasing no financial private sector assets. The euro system will purchase a broad portfolio of simple and transparent asset-backed securities. And he told people, don't fear securitization. You know, securitization got a very bad name, but because, because of what was being securitized. And um, there isn't necessarily only bad securitization. It could be good securitization, depending on what people trade, what, how much risk they retain, and so on. And as I mentioned, we saw a very big drop in the euro. The euro down well under $1.30 now at 1.2929. So that was a more than a 1.5% move in the euro down. That gives you an idea of how much surprise there was. Let's give you now some quick reaction. Back in June, when they did have the last package, they sickened they were going to be in wait and see mode for a while. And now, only three months later, they're responding to the news relatively quickly. It shows the ECB is getting more and more active, and I think that's part of the reason why the market is reacting. That's Jens Nordwig at Nomura. So anyway, that's one of the big stories of the day, and it's having a big impact on markets. We'll get to all the details, uh, especially how Asia is opening up in just a few minutes. But let me tell you about our guest this morning. We mentioned Richard Harris already. Mark Michelson of APCO Worldwide will be with us to take a look at regional politics. Later, a very interesting anonymous short seller type of report. Anonymous Analytics said that Tianhe Chemical is a massive fraud and the SFC should take action. Jennifer Hughes of the Financial Times will shed some light on the market for short seller information on Chinese companies. We'll also be looking at the analytics group itself and its ties to underground hackers as part of that big underground hackers collective. Well, in markets uh, in Asia, the Nikkei is up 112 points. That's three quarters of 1% because in addition to the euro dropping against the dollar, the yen has dropped against the dollar too. The dollar is now at 105.57 against the yen, and that is a six-tenths of 1% move. The pound, 12 Hong Kong dollars, 62 cents. The fixing rate for the yen, 6.166. Well, we'll also take a look at gold and uh, oil prices. Uh, oil price is now 101.83 a barrel, and gold dropped a little further. An ounce of gold now is $1,258, down another 760.
Well, let's get to uh, the top story this morning. ECB President Mario Draghi made a final round of interest rate cuts and a plan to buy privately owned securities was rolled out, at least in part. He delivered at least 700 billion euros of new aid for the European economy. This reflects the role of the ABS market in facilitating new credit flows to the economy and follows the intensification of preparatory work on this matter. It isn't full quantitative easing as we see in the United States and Japan because the ECB won't be buying government bonds at the moment, but it does inject money into the economy. Let's get some more reaction. First, Kit Jukes at SockGen. Well, we're starting off with purchases of asset-backed securities, what he calls simple, transparent ones, so um, presumably uh, a range of mortgage-backed debt, commercial mortgage-backed debt, credit card debt, and so on. Um, I, you know, that, that, that's the first step that gets us up and running. Um, and then he be, spends the next few months trying to persuade Mr. Weidmann and others to, uh, to let him expand that in the general direction of European government bonds to, to get at the meet where there's much, much more debt that he can buy and, uh, and, and, and act with. But, um, you know, he's making it clear it, it's not going to be um, complicated debt, so it won't be, I don't know, uh, the, the junior structures of, of old CDOs. So CDO squared of, of asset-backed mm-hmm. securities pre-2008, we won't be getting any of that. So that goes back to the comments by Mario Draghi when he said, don't worry, some securitization is uh, still plenty good. But there were a lot of details left out in this, as we hear now from Vadim Zlotnikov at Alliance Bernstein. We still don't know the magnitude. We still don't know the mix of repurchases. And if all the Draghi does is bring the balance sheet, the European, uh, the ECB balance sheet back to maybe three trillion euro, that's probably not going to be enough. And one more thing, he did mention that he may want to have structural reform and fiscal reform in order for the monetary policy to be effective. I think he's right. It was very interesting listening to Mr. Draghi at his news conference last night. It almost kept me up past uh, 10 o'clock, which is a no-no for me. But Mr. Draghi himself fought back a little bit at people's interpretations of his speech at Jackson Hole earlier. He said that he was not pushing for any kind of grand bargain with fiscal authorities, as some, as some have claimed. Let's listen in. One cannot really talk about a bargain, as I've read on, in some some parts, grand bargain. The point from a, from a central banker viewpoint is that it's very difficult for us to reach the objective of uh, an inflation rate which is below, but close to 2%, only based on monetary policy. You need growth. You need to lower unemployment. For doing that, you need other things. And that's what I said. You need fiscal policy. You need structural reforms first and foremost. So in this sense, there isn't any grand bargain here. It's just that each of us has to do their own jobs. That's the ECB president, Mario Draghi, doing his job. Ten minutes now after 8 o'clock. Well, I'd like to bring in Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer of Port Shelter Investment Management. Richard, um, we've got a few other stories to get to in a little bit. We'll talk about that BP deal as well. But uh, we did such a nice segment there on the ECB. I thought I'd ask you a little bit about the impact, uh, both in Europe 
on the United States and also here. Now, we didn't see a lot of gains in the United States. Wall Street finished flat after being up significantly after Mr. Draghi spoke. Wall Street came back a little bit, but we do see a fairly positive reaction, at least this morning, in Japan. How do you read the move by the ECB? Well, I think it it probably would be a bit difficult looking at the U.S. as an indicator, because the U.S. has got it's running to its own tune. Um, I think it's actually quite a big move by the ECB. I mean, Draghi's been the absolute master of um, uh, of being the central banker and saying grand things and doing nothing. But now he actually he has actually done something. You know, the figures are ranging between 700 million to a trillion euros going into the economy. Now, if you relate that to what happened in the US, of course, we saw really quite a stunning bull market because that money doesn't necessarily filter down to the economy straight away. It goes into financial assets. So it's probably a good time to be buying European equities at the moment. Some of the QEs in the United States weren't that effective, but uh, in balance overall, yes, we've seen the market um, massively go up, tripling. The S&P 500 hit 666 in the crisis, and now it's up around 2,000. It fell back four points overnight. The S&P 500, by the way, um, since I didn't get to it earlier, uh, fell four points to uh, to 1996. So it's a little bit of a, a move down. But as you say, the U.S. moves more on domestic news uh, than, it, than it does necessarily on Europe. But um, do, you, do you expect that uh, the European markets now will rally um, over the next year? I think it looks pretty good for the European markets. Uh, you, you know, the thing about QE, and this has been coming up both in the commentators and Draghi himself, is that to really get an economy to recover, to see the growth that we run, it's not just the central bankers that can do things or need to do things. It's also the governments. And the governments have to come in with policies of their own to encourage growth. And so far, very few of them have actually done that. The UK's done a little bit, and you've seen the, uh, the results and the fact that the UK economy's not doing too badly. But the European governments haven't, and I think that's really the next step. So money is fungible. It tends to flow to areas where it can get the highest returns, usually countries that have more growth or where liquidity makes the most difference. Uh, Will some of this money somehow find its way to us, to Asia? That's possible. I mean, uh, it certainly happens in the the United States. Uh, uh, Absolutely. You know, you've got a trickle down effect. But I think we've got to think in terms of a trickle down. And whereas I think the U.S. uh, uh, investors there are perhaps slightly to look at Asia a little bit more. Uh, I'm not so sure about the U.S., but it's certainly possible. Uh, Don't forget that um, whereas the US often laid out definite programs of QE, there seems to be no real laid out program here. He's just talking about doing it. So maybe he won't use the whole 700. Maybe it'll just be part of that uh, uh, as necessary. So what they did wasn't unanimous. Uh, He didn't get too specific on that. But uh, it obviously uh, portends a fight with Germany. Germany is not a fan of uh, quantitative easing. And this isn't all the way to buying government bonds. But But as we heard in some of those comments there from commentators, uh, that's where the real debt is. So they could make the biggest impact. Uh, Do you think that they will be able to win this argument with Jens Weidman and uh, Angela Merkel? I I think it's, uh, you you know, they've done it and I'm sure they've uh, had discussions behind the scenes. So I should think the political situation will will work its way out. The, The big complication, however, is the reason this has come about is because the authorities are worried about inflation. Inflation is very low in Europe. I can't help thinking that they're putting 
the uh, the cart before the horse because after all inflation is a resultant of economic growth the fact that inflation is low and you cut interest rates by 10 basis points that's 0.1 of a percent isn't really going to do an awful lot um, to that i think really what is necessary is growth measures and in a little way you can see Draghi's frustration saying we need the governments to do something I alluded earlier to an impact on us. We have had quite a bull run in the Hang Seng Index. Uh, Not the best of days uh, yesterday, but not too bad. Not selling off after that massive rally that we had uh, earlier in the week. How does the Hong Kong and Shanghai market uh, look to you at the moment? Well, I don't think Hong Kong looks too bad. I suspect it's been rather held back by the political issues, um, uh, and it'll move forward. But, you know, increasingly, Hong Kong is becoming a representation of, of the Chinese market. And I I think this will continue. I think in the minds of foreign investors, Hong Kong will become a proxy for investing in China. The index is is largely China. Uh, maybe it's about 15% that actually refers to Hong Kong now. So I think what we're going to see is the Hong Kong market is going to continue to take a lead from China and the China economy rather than what's happening within Hong Kong. So a couple of news items this morning. Uh, China may allow listed developers to sell bonds on its interbank market. Now, that's a little heady stuff for probably the average listener, but it is a new kind of financing uh, for the developers. And analysts say that it's almost the equivalent of credit easing, so it makes it a little bit easier for them. And it also indicates that Beijing is looking for other avenues to push growth, to push growth up to 7.5%, which has been the target. And we had this second developer Yes, you uh, property uh, to raise funds in a rights issue. Now, as you mentioned, uh, this is quite a big discount. This is a particular one where they will allow investors to buy 33 new shares at $1.25 each for every 100 that they own at the moment. That marks a 25% discount to the last closing price. And since we had the first one from, um, what was it, Country Garden, and that was a 30-odd percent discount, um, what does it mean to you? Well, uh, these discounts are quite high. It means that basically these companies need equity. They need more shareholders to put more money into the company to make them stronger. Yeah, explain and it to people listening who are not so familiar with the rights issue. It's a, a listed company that wants to raise money. Yeah, that's right. And it offers more shares uh, usually to its existing shareholders, but they could be taken up by the rest of the market as well. So essentially, they're looking for more shareholders into the company to put equity into the company. Now, in order to attract them, there's usually a discount. And that discount is is often 5%, 6%, maybe in a company that's, um, that's a blue-chip company. These companies are now going for 25 30%. So clearly they need the money. Um, uh, and going on to your, your, the bond issues uh, earlier, the reason why that's important is that bonds are a much more long-term way of funding yourself. And in China, it's rather an immature market. At the moment, there's a lot of bank debt. And the banks can, as we all know, uh, at the wrong time, want their money back. Yeah. Okay, let's get back to some of the news flow. BP is facing billions of dollars in new fines. A U.S. judge ruled overnight that BP acted with gross negligence in the 2010 Gulf of Mexico oil disaster. More here from Bloomberg's Alex Steele. Grossly negligent in the 2010 uh, Gulf of Mexico Macondo oil spill, indicating that fines may rise for BP. This is actually an enormous deal. Gross negligence means the company acted with willful or wanton misconducts or reckless indifference. And what that winds up meaning for a bottom line for BP is depending on what the judge rules and how big the spill was, the fines could reach up to 4,300. 
$100 per barrel uh, that was released. And you're looking at a stock chart there, obviously down uh, almost 3% on the news. The total uh, cost for this could be something like $17 billion based on 4 million barrels that were released into the uh, Gulf of Mexico at this high-end fine of $4,300. So that's Alex Steele from Bloomberg reporting. Uh, BP has spent, by the way, more than $28 billion so far in its response to the accident. The stock fell 5.9% in overnight trading. Okay, just a couple of other quick uh, notes for you. Uh, we mentioned that the Nikkei was higher, but we didn't tell you about Australia and Seoul. Australia is down four points, the ASX 200 at 56.27. So just a very modest drop there in Australia. The Aussie dollar has uh, held on to some strength here against the U.S. dollar. We mentioned that the dollar was stronger against the euro and the yen, but the Aussie was strong against the greenback. It's at 93.35 cents. And the pound 12, Hong Kong dollar 62 cents. And in Seoul, the Cosby was down two points at 20.54. Our next guest on the program is Mark Michelson, Senior Counselor at APCO Worldwide. Mark, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of these regional issues. Let's start with Hong Kong first. Uh, Occupy Central, do you think that the organizers are backing away a little bit? And will this have a much smaller impact on the business community than what the business community feared? Well, I, I, I think it might, although it's really too early to tell. You know, you can say that by saying you're backing away, you might encourage more people to come. In the end, the university uh, students clearly are, are getting organized, and that may be not just on the university campuses, but outside. So I, I suspect we'll have some action, but to what extent, I, I think the the uh, jury is still out on that one. I don't think it's very clear. And but they're, they're, not even, they're not even saying, really, that they're backing off. They just kind of no. hinted at it. Yeah. And, and then they wanted to stand tall and say, no, no, we're proceeding with this, and we expect 10,000 people. Yeah, I, I mean, who knows? But I, th- I think there's still quite a lot of dissatisfaction. And although uh, it's clear that uh, that the Chinese decision, the MPC decision, has deflated some of that, uh, still, I think for for others, it's probably increased their their will to uh, to do something. So I suspect we'll see something. But to what extent? I think there are other people that know more about that than I do. Will investors or companies worry about Hong Kong losing some of its core values now, since well, what, I, what I, looked I, like a real election is now going to be somewhat short of that what 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 most what most business people i think look at is whether hong kong continues to operate effectively now we in hong kong see some real flaws in in doing that but for for example the regional companies i deal with most of these regional general uh, directors spend most of their time outside of hong kong hong kong is either very small or no part of their business so as long as the basics work, immigration, uh, taxes, those sort of things, then it's, it's, it generally will, will, uh, will not affect it. But still, I think we're in a situation now where there is a bit of a threat, not only, not only political, but economic. Let's switch to Japan briefly. What did you make of the cabinet reshuffle? Well, you know, it, it clearly was, was uh, focused at least on two different Two different objectives. One was to uh, to reinforce Abenomics to some extent, and several ministers that were appointed in several key positions uh, sort of share Abe's view in that. And also was to prepare the way for him to be reelected as head of the party and therefore prime minister in about a year or so. 
Yeah. And, and uh, do you think that, um, you know, that this actually in any way helps spark the third arrow to um, reach fruition? Well, to some extent. I, but, you know, it's still to do that, to do that really effectively, you really have to significantly change agriculture. Uh, you have to change the relationship between the government and industry, and especially construction industry and others, and, all, all, and of course, the financial system. And that, that's part of what he's, what he's aiming at. Also, it looks like wages in real terms have continued to fall for more than a year, which, which is lowering the standard of living. And although Abe remains pretty popular because of the early success and, and also, I think, his, his whole attitude, the monetary easing, the public work spending, uh, the, some of the structural economic reforms, and we've seen stock markets and, and yen value look pretty good. Now the tough part comes, and also he has to make a decision about two things, uh, more than two things, but two in particular. One is whether he's really going to raise the consumption tax again, and, and again, we aren't quite sure what the impact of that has been. Uh, it's been negative to begin with, but uh, but Japan might recover, and maybe that's something they needed. And number two, the nuclear facilities, which is something that the business community has has been asking for a sustainable a sustainable energy supply, and that would be part of it. But that's very controversial in Japan as well. Okay, you know. just in thirty seconds or so, what do you make of the cozying up of India and Japan? Well, I I think it's uh, it's it's probably makes sense for both sides. Uh, both sides, uh, both uh, both of the prime ministers are, are reformers. They tend to be on the right wing. They're nationalists. They've pledged to revive their their nation's economies and ensuring up re- regional alliances uh, to, to counter, frankly, uh, China in many ways. So although they're both close to China, at the same time they share an interest in uh, in trying to control that. And okay. plus, they have a close personal relationship. Uh, as you probably know, they've they've met each other a couple of times before uh, when Modi was minister and, and now as prime minister, uh, his first visit overseas outside of South Asia is to Japan. Okay, Mark, you're on the phone, so you've got to go a little early. Thanks very much okay, for joining thanks us. thanks a lot. Mark Michelson, senior counselor at APCO Worldwide. You never give me your money. You only give me your funny Twenty-five minutes after eight o'clock, listening to Money for Nothing here on Radio Three. Well, shares of Tianhe Chemical were suspended from trading Tuesday at the request of the company. The company said errors of fact and misleading statements were put out by a group called Anonymous Analytics. Anonymous is the group with ties to a well-known underground hackers collective. It claimed massive fraud at Tianhe, which listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange three months ago. Jennifer Hughes, Lex writer for Asia at the FT Joint. Jennifer, good morning. Good morning. So you you investigated this. Um, you know, it's it's very interesting. I hope we have enough time in five minutes to talk about several different items. But uh, in looking at Tianhe, do you think that this short seller type of group has a point? It's really too soon to say. I mean, we've had a brief statement back from from the company saying it's malicious and misleading what's been out in this report. Until we get a full response from them and we get a sense of, you know, the wider issues here. It's really too soon to say. And, and briefly, who is this group, Anonymous Analytics? <laughs> we wish we knew. I mean, you're dealing with an email address here. We have no more than that. They respond to questions. They say they're linked to Anonymous. Anonymous, the shadowy collective, hasn't said they're not. 
We don't know where they got the information from. And yes, it does lower their their credibility that we don't know who we're dealing with here. Chris Oliver is one of my colleagues. He joins me uh, on the program. And of course, Richard Harris has been with us uh, all throughout the program. Richard is the chief executive of Port Shelter Investment uh, Management. And and both of you gents can uh, weigh in as well. Um, I'm interested in... um, in the impact uh, that this has had, uh, is it very common that an anonymous group will come out with a report and the stock actually gets suspended? It's quite common for stocks to get suspended. It's one of the problems for short sellers in Asia in that... But not many short sellers are anonymous, and we should say that the company itself requested it be suspended. Yes, that is what they did. No, it's not common for someone to be anonymous. Yes, it does lower their credibility. But short seller reports like this, we see the whole time. Whether this was prompted, whether anonymous was prompted by, I don't know, another short seller who didn't want to put it in its own name, we don't know. They haven't said. This isn't the first time that uh, Anonymous has put out a report on a company. On their website, they list uh, at least six other reports that they put out. Uh, naming, among others, uh, Chowda Modern Agriculture. Do you have any sense of the track record of their ability to, you know, sort of weed out corporate corruption and fraud in these companies? They've had a couple of successes. Chowda, as you say, is one of them. Not everything's been a success. Uh, Chihu 360, as a U.S.-listed company, that's up about fivefold since they attacked that in 2012. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, I mean, all short sellers have a mixed record. Theirs is no better or worse than most. Jennifer, this sort of um, thing actually is, in a sense, quite big news because on the one hand you have a company that denies the issue, but of course fraud is an important accusation. On the other hand, you have a company that um, appears to be manipulating the market in some way if it's not correct. Um, Where do you think this this is likely to end up? (laughs) It's really hard to say at this point because we're waiting back for the company to say give us a more full version of their you know their rebuttal of the claims then we get to see whether there might be some issues behind it that they think are worth investigating further when the report came out as i understand it the t and her management were actually on a roadshow talking to investors in the u.s so they were working 12 hours away from where the allegations and the market was acting since the stock's been suspended you know, everyone is now waiting. But the way the stock is suspended, it means at least it takes some of the heat out of the market while we wait for more information. Do you, do you get the feeling there's any sense of embarrassment inside the investment banking community that, uh, you, you know, this, this company only listed on the Hong Kong Exchange three months ago and suddenly it's been called up, on, its books are in question uh, on this report. And I see the two of the banks that sponsored the flotation, <coughs> excuse me, have suspended coverage of the company. Well... As you might expect, the banks have been quite tight-lipped about it. Yes, nobody wants to have this sort of thing happen three months after listing. And if allegations are proven to be correct somewhere down the line, the banks will be in trouble. But for now, the research, I mean, the way they'll put it is that this shows the independence of their research because they could have claimed as a bank that they should just stand behind the company. But their their research team is independent, they say. And this is why that's happened. We should mention these are big, uh, big names: Morgan Stanley, UBS, uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. So, and I'm just curious: is there any sense that there's uh, a short selling going on ahead of this uh, release of this report? What, what is the money behind Anonymous that may be motivating 
you know, the, they obviously had to fund research into the 66-page report. Nobody knows. <laughs> well, I love the fact that even if you're anonymous, you still have a legal disclaimer at the front of your report. Um, <laughs> yeah. They say that they don't trade. That's what their report says. But they say we should assume that their affiliates do. Okay. we got to go. Unfortunately, out of time. News coming up next. Thank you, Jennifer. Jennifer Hughes, Lex Rider for Asia at the Financial Times. This is Money for Nothing. Mainly cloudy with some showers today, a few thunderstorms this morning, maximum temperature 31. The outlook, sunny periods the next few days. The news with Samantha Butler. In an apparent attempt to defuse a row with China, Britain has welcomed an assurance from Beijing that it intends to eventually allow Hong Kong to elect its chief executive by universal suffrage. Beijing had demanded Britain shelve an inquiry into whether the 1984 joint declaration on Hong Kong was being implemented. In a conciliatory statement, conciliatory statement Britain acknowledged that the MPC Standing Committee's restrictions on the next CE election would disappoint democracy campaigners, but said it hoped a second round of public consultation would allow for a meaningful advance for democracy. Speaking to RTHK this morning, former Chief Secretary Anson Chan said Hong Kong people would be more offended by Britain's statement than the MPC ruling. If this is all they have to say, it is better left unsaid. The opening statement welcoming the confirmation that China's objective